Let's pray. Heavenly Father, remind us that we are known. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, all of us have a God that we are longing for. Now, we may not run around with a giant statue on, that has a sign on it that says, to an unknown God, but we're all looking for something or someone to help us through this life and maybe, just maybe, help us figure out what's waiting for us when we die. Many of you know my paraphrase of Proverbs 26:45. arguing with an idiot makes you both idiots. The actual Bible verse, by the way, says, do not answer a fool according to his folly or you will be like him yourself. I've listened to people who, with very good intentions and a huge heart, argue that it is so clear that there is a God, okay? I mean, it just, it just screams that anyone who doesn't believe in God is stupid. I wish it were that simple. I know the Bible says when we look at creation, we should see God, and I do, but, but it's only because I'm looking for Him. God has given me the gift of faith, and so I get to see Him wherever I go. But for those who either have chosen not to look for him or don't know what they're looking for, it's just a big sky with a whole bunch of little lights in it. They may sense something greater, but, that's as off, but often that's as far as they get. I've also heard people use the following arguments. Now, there has to be a God because since the beginning of time, everybody has believed that there is one. Or the universe is too complicated to have just happened. Or there has always been a hunger for truth, goodness, love, and purpose. And finally, my personal favorite. Well, because the Bible says so. All of these are great arguments for those of us who believe. But for those who are not believers, we might as well be speaking Klingon. It's impossible to either prove or disprove that God exists using philosophy, geography, physics, or grammar. Just as it's impossible to prove or disprove that goodness or evil exists based solely on those same arguments. In 1964, the Supreme Court was tasked with determining whether a particular motion picture was obscene. Their final verdict was no. Associate Justice Potter Stewart was tasked with writing the official opinion in order to justify the ruling. He simply said, I know it when I see it, and I'm putting in brackets, and that is not it. Now, this is the way that most of us treat things like God and goodness and evil. We know such things, and especially God, when we see them. Except that other people have differing opinions, which is why the whole world isn't gathered around a campfire singing Kumbaya, because everyone in the world sees things differently. The church also loves to assume everybody is looking for God and goodness in heaven. But not everybody is. Some are content with whatever they found at the moment that fills whatever hole is in their life right now. Others claim to be looking, but their life says otherwise. They're just drifting. Some are looking in all the wrong places. And still others have just given up. Ever come home on a Sunday or Christmas day humming a hymn, the taste of wine and bread still on your tongue, the promises of God fresh in your heart? Your neighbor sees you getting out of the car and you've got this smile on your face and your neighbor turns and says, yeah, so how come you're so happy? And with your best evangelistic smile, you turn and you say, you know, it turns out that God loves me, forgave me, and knows me. And your neighbor just grunts and goes back to whatever they were doing. 
You know, one of the most important lessons in evangelism is discovering faith is not something we can teach, preach, push, force, or argue. The only thing that we can actually do, point to Jesus. If someone bothers to ask what is so special about Jesus compared with the millions of other gods that are in the world, all we can do is tell them what we are experiencing or feeling, that we are known, that we are loved, that our life has purpose. We have our doubts, but, but those are the reasons. See, St. Peter put it this way, always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. However, do this with gentleness and respect, keeping your conscience clear so that when you're accused, those who denounce your Christian faith will be put to shame. I'm not a big fan of the word defense there when it says be ready to defend. It, the Greek word is actually give a reason. See, this particular verse stands out because Peter was rarely known for his gentleness and his respect. Oh, he was very good at defense, but not so good with gentleness and respect, which is why it's important we get that word right. You see, in the three years he walked alongside Jesus on the earth, uh, just think of all his boasting, all the times when he called things the way that he saw them and expected everybody else to see it the same way. Now, granted, James and John were the ones ready to call down fire from heaven to consume people who didn't agree with them, but Peter wasn't far behind. So what do you think changed with Peter? In the gospel, when Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor who will be with you forever. I can imagine when he's saying this, him looking straight at Peter, James, and John, not accusing them or expecting them to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees so that they've got their act together and don't need a Savior anymore. But because he knew that after he was crucified, there were going to be some days where the guilt and shame was going to be overwhelming for Peter, James, and John, and the others as well, but especially for Peter, James, and John. They were going to need someone to get them through that dark night of the soul. And that someone is the Holy Spirit or the Counselor. It was at the Last Supper where Jesus told him, A new commandment I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, you are to love one another. Now, this lines up perfectly with Jesus' response to the Pharisees and Sadducees when they asked him, So what's the greatest commandment, Jesus? And Jesus, without blinking, turned and said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. See, the Bible is more than a collection of one-liners or pithy bumper sticker sayings. It is best believed and lived by finding the scarlet thread that ties all the verses and chapters and teacher teachings together into a single common theme. Peter, James, and John would have also remembered Jesus' words, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, than that you lay down your life for your friends. Do you see how all of these verses, even though they were spoken just a little bit separately, all come together? Most of us, by the way, when we hear the word, lay down your life for your friends, we think of Jonah of Ark and Jan Hus, uh, who felt, by the way, the fire kindled underneath their feet before it consumed them. Or Peter, who got crucified upside down. Or John the baptizer, who was beheaded. Or Stephen, who was stoned to death. We think of all those gruesome, terrible martyrs' deaths. But the truth is, most of us will not be martyred so quickly or publicly. Our deaths will take place over our whole life as we die to sin and to stubbornness and our emotions and anger and all the other things that we struggle with, all the things that Jesus died to save us from. 
See, Jesus works through the Holy Counselor to slowly and painfully remove these deathly hangers-on so that we can be reborn, or at least part of us can be reborn at a time, just as, as Jesus talked with Nicodemus about that night. This seesaw process of sanctification continues until the day we slip out of this flesh and blood and walk into the new and perfect us that God has waiting in heaven. Until then, until then we learn to live by faith and grace. Have you ever stayed at one of the really nice hotels? When Nance and I were getting ready to celebrate our 25th anniversary, which was a really long time ago, we decided we wanted to do a quick getaway, just, just a night. We found somebody to take care of the kids. And while I was searching for a place to stay, one of our members showed up and said, look, I can get you a really good deal because of my company out at the JW Marriott at Coalina. It was a little more even after his discount than we thought we were going to spend, but, but we decided to splurge. What we didn't know was we were getting a junior suite with an ocean view and a room service credit. Yeah, but here's the part that really stood out. We opened the closet. And inside were two of these robes that were softer than anything that we had ever felt before in our lives. Oh, you wanted to just cuddle them all night. In fact, you started to wonder if anybody would notice if you just put them on and just wore them out to the beach and around the hotel. And if you just could just live in one because it was so comfortable. Now add this to the room service, somebody, in other words, cooking and bringing our food and cleaning up, and somebody cleaning up our room. Oh, and then that night we went for a walk on the beach, but we weren't wearing the bathrobes. We went for a walk on the beach, and when we came back, they had turned down our beds and put a little chocolate and a little orchid on the pillow. I mean, this, this was just, we were like, wow. Yeah, it was great until 11 a.m. the next day when we had to check out, leave the robes and slippers, room service and housekeeping all behind. See, there are moments when my faith and God and heaven and grace are so real, I just want to cuddle them. I just want to walk around with them wherever I go. And then there are the other moments when they seem like they're just out of my reach. And no matter how far I, I can put my hand out, they're just that much further. And I think God lets us go through those seesaw moments so we have a foretaste of what is waiting for us. But we also experience the gut-wrenching moments where we remember what those who are still looking for God are going through. See, it's so easy to let the old us, the one that Jesus died to save us from, pop up from time to time. And perhaps that is why the now-sainted Peter said, if you're going to tell people about Jesus, do it with gentleness and respect. See, it's quite possible he was talking to himself as much as he was talking to us. He makes it clear we all need the Holy Spirit to help us get through this life and where we need to be. And so when we talk with others about Jesus, especially those, by the way, that are still outside the church and outside the faith, instead of hitting them over the head with a 50-pound KJV Bible, he says there might be a better way. See, the holy counselor or advocate or spirit that Jesus is talking about is infused in us at our baptism when the water is poured over us and, and God's word is spoken over us. Infused is a great word. It's much like the catechism where it says that Jesus is in, with, and under the bread and wine of holy communion. You see, this infused faith, well, it begins working in, with, and under us to accomplish God's work and God's will. 
not just in our life, but also in our families and in our communities and nation and eventually the world. You know, we rarely even notice it as it methodically replaces the old self with the new self. It's only when you say something and somebody turns and says, you know, that, that really didn't sound like you. And, and we realize it really didn't sound like us. And, and suddenly we realize that the Holy Spirit is working in and through us to, to bring about a new self that we realize that the Holy Spirit can actually turn a sow's ear into a silk purse, which even though you won't find it in the Bible, I, I think most of you know what it means. See, while the world may not be building statues to an unknown God, just about all of them are trying to figure out how to turn a sow's ear into a silk purse or turn the mess that their life is right now into something that they don't mind living or healing the world and making it a place that they wouldn't mind their children living in. You see, and that is why St. Paul stepped into the garden at Mars Hill and walking among all the statues dedicated to all the gods finally settled on the one that said, to an unknown God. I'm pretty sure there were a dozen statues that had the words, to an unknown God, scratched out, and then in a big messy red marker, a new name was written underneath, and then somebody had to go and order a whole new statue with a whole new plaque that said, to an unknown God, because they discovered a new God, and that statue was taken, and they had to replace it. You see, these folks were so afraid they were missing out on the one thing they needed that they didn't want to leave anything to chance. A few years earlier, St. Paul, who at the time was known as Saul of Tarsus, the the great Pharisee, he would have come in with both barrels blasting and called them names that would have made a Hollywood actress blush and laid out a very narrow path to his God and given them no choice but to accept his God. He would have argued until he was blue in the face, never giving an inch. But today this is a kinder, gentler Paul. And so he says, "I, I noticed you got a statue to an unknown God. Can you... Tell me what it is that you're looking for, because I might be able to help. See, the moment someone opens up an avenue to talk about spiritual things, whether it's a statue to an unknown God, whether it's a tear, a cry for help, a look in somebody's eyes that says they're lost, you see, that's when Peter says we better be ready to give the reason for the hope that is within us. And before you think that you need some sort of a prepared speech with 15 subpoints, graphics, and a handout, you don't. If you can't think of a time you felt lost or alone or hopeless or needy or sad, you're, you're probably a robot. And if we are honest during those times when we were overwhelmed, it wasn't anything anyone said so much as them just being willing to ask or notice us that made all the difference. And even if we knew they didn't have what we wanted or needed, just having someone not yell at us or ignore us allowed us to take a deep breath and then keep breathing. If you haven't picked up on it yet, it's the word hope that matters. People may not know what they want, but they know they want or need something. And that something always begins with hope. Hope for a better life. Hope for a better world. Hope for their children, hope for their parents, hope for their neighbors, hope for themselves, hope for hope's sake. The cross is more than something to hang around your neck or hang over a church altar. Jesus' death on a cross declares something about the God of hope. You see, the one who created both the world we live in and the heaven we're waiting for, this is the God of hope. The depth of love revealed and poured out on the cross is the same love that will accompany Jesus 
when he returns to take his people home. I've always wondered if our apocalyptic doom and gloom preaching, which causes so many to be afraid of God, says more about what we think we deserve instead of what God is offering to us. You see, God is the one who dies on the cross. And God is the one who is going to return to bring us home. Now, if God is the one doing all the creating and dying and saving, what is it that we're doing? Well, we're creating statues that say to an unknown God. And all of that says that we're waiting. Waiting for someone to show up. Someone to save us. Someone to love us. Someone to bring us hope. Someone to bring us home. It was the prophet Isaiah who said, Oh, that thou would rend the heavens and come down. To be honest, I think that's a lot of our prayers. Which is why whether it's a bunch of us sitting around a statue to an unknown God or a bunch of us sitting in our car crying or at home yelling or on a park bench wondering or even in the pews on Sunday morning, what an amazing gift when somebody comes to us and says, I see that you're waiting for something. Can you tell me a little bit more because I just might be able to help. When people ask me if God is mad at them or has forgotten them, the heartbreaking reality is, is it's because they think somehow God's mercy and grace only go so far and absolutely no further, and they're worried that they may have crossed the line. The cross declares that we have a God who knows us and who wants us to know him. The God who will go to any length to redeem us and remind us that we're loved. This is the God we worship, and this is the God we're waiting for. And it is the God who one day will take us home. Until then, we may need to reread Psalm 139 so that we realize it was really never about an unknown God. It was far more about us being afraid that we were unknown to him. To which God responded with a manger in Bethlehem, a cross and an empty tomb in Jerusalem. And my name and your name right there on a plaque on a door in heaven waiting for us for that day we finally make it home. See, it turns out that we are and always have been both known and loved in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.